Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 196, My Triumphs and My Mistakes. This week, we're discussing season 3, episode 16 of Battlestar Galactica, Dirty Hands, as well as the broader themes and character development of season 6 of Buffy. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Um, all right, yeah, so BSG, we're going to start out with. Um, yeah, so Dirty Hands. Um, I was kind of saying before this, like, I actually think this is a pretty decently written, like, like the dialogue is all pretty good, and I, I think even mm-hmm. sort of like maybe the pacing and like you know going from place to place but not feeling like you're kind of spinning around um too much like like i think the focus on tyrell is really good because we like tyrell and Mm -hmm. you know like i think he's a good character to focus on but um i don't know like well i almost said despite that i don't know if it's I, i don't know if that's it like there's just something about this episode that just like I struggled like even like paying attention to it, <laughs> even though, even though I did sure. think it was kind of like that it was well, like, I remember there were like some nice turns of phrase and like uh-huh. some, some good, you know, I think topically like, you know, the topic is fine. Like, you know, and, mm-hmm. and an interesting sort of take on whatever, but at the same time, like, I don't know, I just kind of felt myself, each time I was watching it sort of drifting away and being like, okay, like, mm-hmm. and maybe it's just cause it was like, maybe it was like too, like not on the nose per se, but like just too kind of like, okay, yep. I get it. Let's mm-hmm. move on. Like, right. you know how like sometimes like if you're reading, like you're reading a book and not like, a, not like fiction, but like a, a nonfiction book or essay or something. And you're like, yep yep you've made your point okay like i'm I'm with you mm-hmm. i'm along but then it's like then the author keeps going and it's like mm-hmm. they get more evidence for the thing that you're already like on board with <laughs> you know what sure. i mean right. so it, like maybe that's more it. it's not like not like any right. of it was bad not like any of it like i did i didn't really necessarily disagree with anything or like you know mm-hmm. think they did disservice to one point or another, you know, maybe I, I, we do need to talk about Adama and Rosalind's characters, but, Mm -hmm. um, and actions, but like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. It was just kind of like, it's not like, you're not saying that, uh, Oh, you, you're, um, I didn't agree with this. So I tuned out like, you're kind of saying like, no, I'm pretty much on board with where, yeah. Like with the, the message, if we can use that word in quotes. So it's not a problem of, um, you know, argument or, right. You know, or yeah. Or or like poor execution or anything, you know, it was all well done. Whatever. It was like, okay. Yep. All right. Yeah. No. And it is like pretty quiet, you know, like there's really no, like it's very like yeah. one of the lightest in terms of like action that, that you know, and I'm not saying that that sure. necessarily equates boring, but maybe if if that's something that wasn't really executed well, like you know, okay, if there's not like big, um, huge big moments, whether I mean even in terms of character moments, like there's a couple big dramatic moments, but mostly it's like people and, kind of talking and thinking and 
and, arguing and stuff. And maybe it does just yeah. What if it's not going to be something big and dramatic? Like there needs to be something really compelling about the the you know and, the writing or the direction to sell and the, like the idea. I'm not implying that like I want yet another episode of like Lee and Starbuck like yelling and crying right. over each other or anything. Like I'm I'm right. glad we don't right. have more of that. <laughs> yes, right. No, it is like we are yes, good to see variety and branching out and yeah, um, focus on different characters and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, like I don't want to harp on it, but I just kind of yeah. wanted to note that kind of up front and um mm-hmm. and also because like well, you I think you were going to tell us who the writer writers were on this one yeah well i thought like since we're talking about we might as well mention the writers and director because it's like if we're talking about the the writing or the directing process of like you know then i think it's probably worth mentioning um that this was actually co-written um and a little bit of a passing of the torch um it's the last script written by ann cofell saunders who's been around pretty much since the beginning um and written a lot of you know memorable episodes and kind of was like the the voice behind the whole pegasus arc and everything so Mm. um so she's kind of notable that this is the end of her uh bsg involvement and she goes on to do other things um and then uh co-written with jane espenson who so this is her second episode now and then she comes on as like a full-time staff writer um in the fourth and last season so there's you know kind of a baton passing happening there um and you know both good writers that have written good episodes before and you know and I I do think the writing is good here I agree that like whatever the problem is it's not necessarily purely a writing problem um and then uh I actually just looked up the director um Wayne Rose, who, you know, we could maybe, I wonder if there's maybe just some learning curve here of like a fairly new director, um, because he directed for some TV shows before, but nothing, you know, terribly notable. So maybe was kind of still, you know, cutting his teeth and everything. And then it looks like he directed a, a lot of the like, kind of ancillary or spinoff material, like he did the Resistance miniseries like the webisodes and he also directs the webisodes that go with season four um and then when we talk about razor he directed all the flashback mini episodes Mm. that go with that um and so this was his first full episode of the show that he directed um so it could just be a matter of somebody still sort of learning their craft maybe he maybe he took a quiet script and didn't quite know how to make it super you know, compelling without like, you know, some of the usual tricks like big space battles and that kind of thing. Um, And then he, looking ahead, the two episodes he directs in season four are, I think, quite good, Um, or at least, you know, are well regarded in general, if not by every, you know, there's no accounting for taste, but I think they're seem to be pretty um, popular episodes. So, um, so who knows? Maybe it could be just, you know, his inexperience or maybe there was something that got lost in translation that didn't quite make it from the script to the, the screen or, um, 
you know? Yeah. I'm not sure. I kind of, I don't necessarily disagree. Like, I feel like the premise of the episode is pretty distinctive and memorable, but I didn't always necessarily remember the details and the specifics as well as some others. Like, I definitely had to pay attention and take notes to remember, like, okay, what is the specific chain of events that leads Tyrrell to, from one person to the next or from one, or his decision-making process? Like, I remember, oh, like, oh, this is the Union episode where Tyrrell, like, um, you know, goes on strike. But, like, the specific details of that weren't necessarily quite as vivid as some other things. Um, sure. So. But I, you know, the premise is strong, so I think there's stuff, even if it's not the most interesting show to, or episode to watch, Yeah. hopefully it'll be a little bit more interesting to talk about, because I think some of the ideas are definitely worth talking about. Yeah. Well, and, and I definitely think that, again, going from Tyrrell's perspective for the bulk of the episode is a good choice, because you see sort of the two... Like, like, there's actually, when you start to think about it, I, I think there's a lot of directions he's sort of being pulled on, like, different levels. Like, like there's two different aspects of who he is pulling at him um, mm-hmm. in different ways. And so you get, you get that on a couple different levels. So um, I think that'll be good. But maybe even before we get to Tiro, let's talk about kind of what the situation is and kind of what's happening and and kind of the conditions um and then we can like talk through him and the different people he's um uh interacting with throughout the episode so i mean basic situation is um you get you you know you get the deck hands and the knuckle draggers doing their thing on the deck and um i like that there's sort of like tyrell's voice in the background like you're getting like all this stuff going on and it's like Tyrrell, mm-hmm. like kind of jokey kind of ordering, which is like actually yeah. another like sort of duality that you see in mm-hmm. Tyrrell too, right? Like the, I'm in charge, but I'm also your friend, you know, right. um, going back even to um, the episode with the, the boxing, right? Like where that was right. Adama's point is like, you right. can't be, right. you're not their friend. Yeah. Right. You can't be friends. Um, and it was even right. uh, if you're if you're going to be an effective leader, yeah. Um, uh, it was even what's his name? Uh, uh, yeah, the old guy. Yeah, Figursky. Yeah. Uh, who who was kind of the right? Who was kind of like, lazy and yeah, yeah, like, or the trigger that uh, leads Adama to beat the crap out of Tiro, and then <laughs> right, you know, vice versa. But um, anyway, yeah. So like, you kind of get this. Yeah, like, I'm the boss, but I'm also jokey, and mm-hmm. we're having fun, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, like, th- there are little details in there. I noticed this time, um, as it's all those establishing shots of, like, them, the knuckle draggers just working and getting a sense of the environment, there's somebody with, like, a bionic hand. There's, like, a, mm-hmm. like, you know, somebody doing work with, like, like, from their elbow down is, like, you know metallic with like a kind of hook claw thing at the end so like you even get that little hint of like how dangerous the work is and the kind of manual nature of it of like all right these are people who i assume the implication being this is somebody who lost an arm 
in some sort of machine accident. Like that seems to be where the point of having something like that there. Well, so and, and without kind of telling you that it's establishing like, all right, th this is the kind of working environment that these folks are, you know, dealing with every day. Sure. And, and coming after the whole, you know, Tyrell and Callie being trapped in an airlock, right. yeah. you know, and having right. to like, go the dangerous way out, yep. <laughs> you know, so to speak. Right. No, that's a really, really good point. Um, yeah. And in some ways, that's a really good point. Because I think I, I think that this is wrong. Now that I think about it, I think I would have thought, oh, why would you have the two Tyrell and Callie episodes right next to each other? Wouldn't you want to spread them out and have some like variety of like, not put them right next to each other. But like, that's a really good point that like, even though they don't mention that episode in this, you know, or that story in this episode explicitly, I mean, they have Callie kind of still walking with a cane. So there's like little references to it. Right. Um, but if you are watching them back to back, you do kind of, hopefully you get that implication of like, okay, remember how dangerous their jobs are. Um, yeah. You know. Um, so yeah, so like, yeah, you get the working conditions are pretty bad. Um, and that's leading to, I mean, maybe that's what happened to the person's arm. Um, and there, and of course it being a robotic arm, that's sort of, uh, foreshadowing, I guess, of later the injury with, mm -hmm. with Danny and, and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, so you get that, um, and it's like you see that it's not just like the Galactica, right? Like the Galactus, Galactica is clearly beat up. Um, again, the whole mm -hmm. premise of last week's episode was that, like, there's this airlock that's been months, I guess, or weeks, or however long that has gone unattended because there's been so much other stuff before they could even get to that that they had yeah. to deal with. So it's not like it's not this like like oh okay this just happened like yesterday in a Cylon attack it's like been weeks and weeks and like stuff all across the fleet is starting to break down and one of those things is the Tillium refinery and it's mm -hmm. part mechanical it seems like but it's also like part you know the people the stress mm -hmm. and the lack of uh you know rest and and you know all of that stuff kind of going on um and whether, like, we never really figure out, and I think I like this, or at least I, didn't, I don't remember seeing it, um, mm. we never really figure out if that the improperly refined Tilium that causes the Raptor to blow up and hit Colonial One, mm -hmm. if that was itself accidental or not. Mm. Like was that was that the was that part of the sabotage like the general sabotage and leading up to a strike? Right. Or was it like that happened and then they're like All right, things are too bad, we need to put a stop to this, so we're gonna right. do like a soft strike and then like, you know, it right. builds up into something bigger. 
And like it, like I, I don't. I'm okay with that being ambiguous. Like I'm fine mm-hmm. that they don't actually answer that question or not. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that's interesting that they don't. So um, right, either either Sneaky's, you know, Fenner, like you know, kind of arranged something that looked like it could be accidental, or he's um, capitalizing on. Right. An actual accident that, well, this just proves the point that I've been making for well, weeks or months now. Um, and so might as well use that to say to Rosalind, like, this is why we need, you know, help and, and resources and yeah. all these things. Right. And he uses that to say, well, maybe more things should go wrong. So, yeah. So, again, it's still ambiguous. Like, mm-hmm. like did he do that hoping he would have this conversation with Rosalind, that she would pull him in? Or was it like, or was it like, hey, actually, maybe, maybe it is time to start doing this on purpose. Like that wasn't on purpose, but maybe the next one will be, you know? Right. And, and you can kind of see the wheels turning of like, huh, that actually like got results. Like whether this was accidental or not, like when there was an actual mistake where a couple people got hurt and you know there was damage to the ships and all these things suddenly i'm invited to colonial one for a discussion so like this is you know accidents are effective in a way that like complaints aren't um yeah um right so sort of in the midst of all this then you have the uh publishing publication of Baltar's book. So Baltar sort of being held uh, as a, a kind of political prisoner at this point, right? right? Like, and he's apparently been secreting pages of this book that he's been writing out with his lawyer. Right. Um, or at least somehow getting them out. Um, of course, the interesting right, part right. there is that Roslyn is like, oh, we know you've been doing this and we've been, uh, you know, uh, intercepting all of the pages and stuff. But, like, clearly that's not true because this book is getting out. So, yeah, yeah the question, like, is she bluffing? Like, they just think that's how he's doing it, but, like, don't really know. Or maybe he's writing, like, double copies and, like, there's one copy for them to find. And then like the lawyer has another copy, you know, stuffed down his mm-hmm. pants or something like, you mm-hmm. know, like maybe there's like, there's like the decoy copy that, yeah, that we know is going to get discovered. And then like, there's other copies hidden about his person, you know, right, right. to be, uh, to be smuggled out or something, or I don't, you know, or, or maybe, maybe it's not even a lawyer. Maybe like it's a guard. Right, one of his guards, you know, or, or something. yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's hard to say, like exactly, but yeah. like we find out, obviously, that his book is getting out. People are listening to him, and and of course, it's like it's this egotistically humble, <laughs> you know, <laughs> memoir yeah. of his, mm-hmm. you know, humble upbringing and <laughs> you right. know life life on one of the poor colonies. Um, right, right. Well, it's all like he knows that he's, I mean, he, cause he's got his trial coming up, but there's also the kind of court of public opinion element going on. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, uh, drumming up some sympathy, 
you know, yeah. amongst like he knows he doesn't have the the quote elites, right? He doesn't have the uh he Roslyn and her administration and Adama and the right. loyal officers are not on his side. So who, you know, and it's not totally that's what kind of what makes it compelling is it's not totally yeah lies like he is apparently from this poor farming colony like that's true and he does have points which are compelling and based in truth and in his real experience but there's also of course that element of um he since when well, did he care about making um you know when like so you pointed out before we started recording that um, you know, the last time we heard about the union, they were protesting Baltar's government. Right. And like the the his point of view then was, you know, um, Mr. Gata, you go deal with the union. Like he wasn't interested then in going to them and making a speech about how I understand as a poor farmer's son where you're coming from and let's let's use our common right understanding to work together like he couldn't be bothered and was completely right. driven crazy and annoyed by them so he may have things in common with them but he's never really cared until now about um reaching that understanding yeah. um so i, I so. definitely want to come back to that tyrell and baltar conversation um but for now like yeah like he's got this book it's getting out there and I think you're right. Like, like this is this is the populist thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. maybe not the first or last time we've compared Baltar to a certain, uh, you know, president that is currently at right. the helm of the United States. Um, like, you're you can't raise your estimation in the eyes of like some people. So mm -hmm. instead of trying to like raise yourself, you basically undercut their, you know, mm -hmm. uh, respectability or, or their, you know, uh, uh, authority. And like, if you get enough people who can do that, then like, it makes them sound like petty and mean to be like right. attacking you. And, and, you know, whether that works or not, like, mm -hmm. like that's a tactic <laughs> and well, it does and, work for some people. <laughs> and I think th that it's a very similar tactic to, um, this real life person, because it's like, it seems to me like the, the, the strategy is point out the arrogance and elitism and hypocrisy of these political enemies, which Again, there might be truth in there. Like, I think sure. in some ways, Rosalind and Adama and the officers, like, are arrogant and are a bit elitist and are hypocrites at times. But the strategy is that if Baltar points it out, it he doesn't seem like he's also those things. And the problem is, like, he's totally those things, too. Um, but in the eyes of the people who are kind of frustrated with the, you know, the those in power... Um, it makes him seem more attractive and to be on their side to say, look at how terrible the people in the kind of quote ruling classes are. And with and you you don't kind of go, well, 
yeah, but Baltar has always been all those things as well. Just because he says them yeah. about other people doesn't mean make him any less arrogant or well, elitist or hip- hypocritical. Yeah, um, it's and it's it's being manipulative by showing how manipulative other people are, right? Like it's it's like I can get you to do what I want you to do if I just point out how those other people get you to do what they want you to do. <laughs> like, right. And yet somehow this person comes out looking like they're the honest one, you know, like, which is like the right. weird, I'm just like, telling how the, did that, how I'm did just that telling happen? The truth here. Yeah. Right. 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 Which is like hard for me to understand, but, um, certainly it, it works. Uh, it, it clearly works and probably makes me even appreciate this characterization more now that now that I've seen examples of this in the recent, you know, present. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I kind of appreciate the nuance of the Baltar position more than I did probably like the last time I watched this episode, you know, sure. of like, oh, how could anybody buy this? But like, like coming from Baltar, but like, I think they would, you know? Yeah. So, um, all of this to say that, like, like this is the situation that Tyrrell is sort of in the midst of, along with everyone mm-hmm. else. But, like, he's the sort of point of view character of this episode. So, yeah. um, you know, interesting that you get, like, Callie as kind of the first one to sort of be pointing stuff out. Well, actually... I mean, I guess the Celix stuff actually comes first. I, I wrote down Cali right, first, but sure. but I guess the Celix stuff. So, th- like I said, there's a couple of different ways in which Tyrrell's kind of pulled between two different areas. Um, and I think this is the first one, because you have Celix, who's one of his knuckle-draggers, right? Um, who apparently qualifies mm-hmm. as smart enough and capable, at least mm-hmm. on the written test, of becoming a Viper pilot and wants to, like has, has the desire to be. Um, but she's told that like in her position, like, like she has a mission critical position and has to stay where she yeah. is because they can't afford it. And she's going around delivering laundry. Um, now Tyrrell right. does say that she's, that she also does avionics, which, you know, is like actually pretty highly technical work mm-hmm. and, you know, electronic systems and stuff, but like she's delivering laundry. <laughs> like, right. so, right. so there's that sense in which like, yeah, whether it's is this the, the best use yeah. of her, whether of her it's talent and her skill. Yeah. Whether it's because, you know, she's low on the military rank or because she's from a poor colony or because she's a woman or like, mm-hmm maybe a combination of all of those things like whatever whatever that reason is like this is where she like even among knuckle draggers like she's mm-hmm. low on the totem pole right. um and Tyrrell tries to talk to her like well you're doing important work or whatever and blah blah, blah. and you even get the sense that he kind of thinks like he's bsing right. himself you know into like try just trying to get her to do what she's supposed to right. do right Right. Um, and and not feel too bad about herself. Like she didn't like he knows it wasn't because of anything that she didn't deserve. But of course she's gonna right. take that on herself, like 
Well, and this is, so this is like the poll, right? It's like, well, you know, we're all kind of fellow knuckle draggers and stuff, but he's also part of the chain of command that has to tell her that her job's important, even though it kind of isn't really. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. like getting her to do what she's doing. And so like, this is like, one thing I I never, I, I didn't realize until just watching this again today was that we don't actually ever know Tyrrell's actual rank. Like, they call him chief. Mm-hmm. But, like, chief isn't a rank. There might be, like, there's, like, well, I mean, maybe maybe it is. The, the, the ranks on the Galactica seem to, like, sort of follow U.S. military rank. So, like, we can sort right. of assume right. that, like, whatever. So, like, if we're talking, like, chief, then probably it's something like chief petty officer. Which is a, right. a naval rank. Which is I it? think that's I think they do say that maybe oh, do they? at some point. Okay. I think that's what he is. Yeah. So like I don't remember when. No, it's 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 a non commissioned officer right. position, but it's still officer. Like it's it's still you're still that higher up right. you know, you're you're still enlisted, you're still a knuckle dragger, but you're again part of that chain of command. Right. Well, he's in the he's in the the awkward no man's land where he's an officer, but he's but he's an NCO, so he's right. the highest up of the NCOs. Right. So, like, but are you so which who who do you belong to? Right. Like, are you lowest on the officer totem pole, or are you highest on the yeah knuckle And, and he's kind pole? of both, and it's that right. duality that kind of like pulls at him. I think. So, and so I think mm-hmm. so that's like the first one, right? So then you get like Callie. Who's, I mean, this is like, this is the home life versus military life, right? But also like, like she's kind of more of an instigator than he is even, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is like the, you know, do we follow like established rule or do we like break and, and do what we believe is right, even if it totally means like being in a mutiny? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, well, and like, like maybe this is a big claim since it kind of is kind of just based on what happens in this episode, but it seems to me like chief is very much based on like what is practical and applicable to his situation. And I'm not saying one of these are better than than the other, but like, he's very much motivated by like, he's not, he doesn't seem like politically that active in the sense of like sitting around talking about the theory of of political systems and what's the best one like he's very much motivated by what works for the situation or what do my knuckle draggers need or what are my officers commanding me to do and that's how he's whereas like Callie seems more like interested in like the politics of it you know, so sure. I mean, so and some of that is practical, applies to her situation, obviously, but also like she's reading this Baltar manifesto and thinking about it and, and applying it to the life that she is living and kind of making those connections. So she takes a more, I guess, like theoretical or in- intellectual approach to it. Sure. Um, and is kind of more like woke, if I can use that word, of like. Like, she's kind of, I think, uh, just more interested in looking at the systems of Galactica and kind of 
tearing down the ones that aren't working or, or protesting them. Whereas like, I think again, Tyrrell is very much about what do, what's going on in the moment and how do I respond to that? And the theory of it, you know, he's, he's skeptical of all of this kind of progressive union talk, even though he's the head of the workers and was the head of the union, you know, it takes him the whole episode before he really gets like, you know, yeah, activated well, to take action that way. And and it's that thing of like with Callie, like you kind of find the evidence you need. So like she's like, oh, sure, you know, where you know, name one officer, and like Tyrrell comes right out. Well, Duala, right? And we've seen, you know, she was from um, Sagittarius, and mm-hmm. they're all obviously looked down on and and whatever, right? Um, Even by Tyrrell. Sure. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Apparently. Um, and then, like right away, like Callie is like, yeah, but she married an Adama and whatever. True, that's her position now. But she was a lieutenant before she married Lee. No, she wasn't though. Was, was it, she? And and yeah, because isn't she's a major now, right? Or or is it? Because wasn't she when she was in the? No, or am I, I getting am I was, getting it wrong? I think that she was like, like a, another petty officer. Like it's not really till she and Lee get together, and it's kind of in the gap year between. Um, or no, he like does call during her the settlement yeah. of. I mean. I don't know that it happened. I don't know the exact timeline. And I don't know that we ever find out the exact timeline. So I could be wrong about that. But I feel like her promotion to lieutenant is is around the time of her relationship with Lee. Um, so I think you do get the sense of, I mean, I don't like that people think this of D, but it's like there has to be that rumor of, how did she get that promotion? Mm. All right. You know? So yeah. So maybe I maybe I maybe I'm forgetting what she was and whatever. Okay. Well, fair enough. So at the same time, like there are thousands of like officers right on board one battle star. So like mm-hmm. like even if that's the case now, like among the group of people that we know <laughs> like mm-hmm. that might be true that you can't think of but like you know again like like is this maybe it is institutional i'm not arguing necessarily against it but it's like mm-hmm. there's still that sense of like okay you're finding you you're only pointing out examples that you can like think of to prove your point like like it has this actually gone through any sort of like statistical analysis is there like what so again i don't i mean maybe it would hold up and maybe it is you know an issue not saying that it's not but Mm -hmm. i do feel like like there is that sense with tyrell like and maybe maybe even like in addition to what you were saying about callie being a little more academic about it um or or whatever like tyrell's Mm -hmm. more the idealist too like well Mm -hmm. no we have you know, a colonial Navy where 
anyone can rise to the rank of admiral and you know right, whatever right um right Callie is a little more of a pessimist of yeah. kind of or you know. or and then, and realist depending her... like who you might right. you know listen to right, right. Depending on the actual demographics, which we don't ever actually learn. So it's hard to kind of say to what right. extent this is true. Right. And I guess that's my point. Like, it, it's, all, it's all very anecdotal. And like, yes, that's right. kind of the nature of the which show. These things often, well, and, and even in life, I think that's true. Like when you argue about discrimination and those things, like, yes, you can do um, research to try to prove a position and like obviously you can get more information than we're ever given here but on the other hand i do think people still argue the anecdotal elements yeah. of those things of like well this is my experience this is what i see happening and that maybe does or doesn't confirm with what the statistics say and somebody else has a different statistic and it's all right. very hard to sort of prove right um well and like sure and that's and that's like the the explanation for like the populist uprising too right of like like you can say like you know white males have it easier in general than any other mm -hmm. class of people but when you're like the white dude who got fired or or not even fired like lost your job at the mine because it shut down or there was an accident or whatever like it doesn't feel to you like you right. have it easier than everybody right. else. Right. And so you, if, when you get enough of that happening, whether it's true, whether even, whether even something like that, or like you just only made a million dollars this year and not a million and a half dollars. And so it feels harder to you. Like, like it's all about that subjective feeling to you mm -hmm. and, and not based on any kind of thing. And I'm not saying even that that's necessarily true here, because I do think in the context of the show, we're, we're given to see enough evidence that like working conditions actually are kind of bad and like mm -hmm. that they're actually, there's at least, you know, without the statistics and all of that, like there does seem to be at least some truth to the things that Baltar is saying. Um, right. Well, there's really two, there's two issues um, one being the danger of the working conditions of these types of jobs, that which is like disproportionate to other positions, maybe with the exception of pilots, you know. Um, I mean, probably pilots have it the worst. Um, but you have to be highly skilled to get to that position and you have to do so voluntarily. You know, like you, you sign up for that job. They're not going to, you know, put anybody in a Viper. Um, so... And that's kind of issue number two is the like discrimination slash inherited nature of, of things. So not only are these jobs particularly difficult and, and dangerous, but people don't have a choice about doing them. And it's only ever seemingly only ever given to certain kinds of people because of virtue of either where they were born or what ship they happen to be on or who their family was that passed on these skills to them. Mm. So it's, it, those are, they're not, it's kind of two separate issues, but that they combine to make a particularly bad situation. Yeah. So anyway, um, so, okay. So you have Celix with, you know, sort of representing Tyrrell's pull between, you know, am I an officer? Am I 
not an officer, like, you know, or, or, well, I mean, he's an officer, but like, am I a, uh, you know, like you said, like at the bottom of the officers or am I at the top of the knuckle draggers or whatever? Mm -hmm. You've got Callie who's sort of like pointing out these, you know, uh, you know, these, these difference, these differences in sort of class and like Tyrrell kind of feeling like, 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 I wonder if part of it too, and this is just sort of occurring to me as I'm talking, like if part of it too for Tyrrell is like, he kind of feels like he did right. Like maybe this is the, no, I am an officer aspect of mm -hmm. it. Right. Like, like that he kind of rose to above, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever situation he came from. And actually, we don't ever... Do we ever find out where Tyrrell is supposed to have come from? Like... Like which colony? Yeah. Um, I don't remember. I know his parents were priests. Right. Right. He says his dad was a priest and his mom was like a seer or, what, or whatever. Right. Or is it the other way around or something? Like... One or the other. Yeah. yeah. And... But I don't remember, like, what colony. Right. Like, um, so, again, like, is this, like, are we talking, like, like, understanding, right. like, that the, 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 like, the priest system is kind of weird. Like, like, is this, like, local parish, you know, kind right. of equivalent? Right. Or is this, like, right. you know, huge, like, archdeaconship, right. you know, right. kind yeah. of. I mean, yeah, it kind of seems like that's the implication. Just thing. Yeah. of, of Tyrrell's character, I would guess the the former right that like right like that seems like the type of upbringing that he had was you know more kind of no i totally agree and yeah and like but like we don't ever get that confirmation so like mm -hmm. like it seems to be that like there's just this assumption that like he is like from one of those one right. of one well, of those and, colonies and i think we do see a correlation between the the more um, overtly religious or fundamentalist colonies seem to be the poorer ones. Like, and maybe that sure. kind of mirrors like a kind of Bible belt in America of like, this is like the, the, you know, like I'm not, I'm not even, don't even mean that in a derogatory way. Like just that, like, I, I would guess that that's what it's mirrored on that. Like, okay. Oh, these more rural um, places which have these deeper, you know, traditions of, of faith systems and those sorts of things. And like, like that's the implication of like Sagittarian, right. Of like, I mean, they're the furthest extreme of like the most kind of almost cultish. They're even a little too extreme for everybody else, but it seems like Caprica as this like center of art and culture and politics is very secular, yeah. you know, which like tends to happen when you have like a very big city of a lot of different influences and a lot of intellectualism and all those sorts of things. Yeah, of, like cosmopolitan and yeah. yeah. Like, and then, and then the, those deep rooted traditions aren't as prominent right. and you get a more, a more skeptical secular yeah. culture. Right. And, and like, that, so that kind of makes sense that like, okay, so he's, his parents were priests, maybe they were local parish priests, like you said, and he, and he's from one of the poorer, more sort of working class colonies. 
um, sure. where he could get these kinds of skills and get these kinds of, you know, to, to work in a hangar deck. And, you know, that was the career that he went into. So, I mean, I think that just kind of makes sense. Like, I imagine they kind of based that on, you know, America or, you know, other countries that have similar sort of geography like that. Sure. Um, all right. So then you get him talking with Baltar. I mean, there's other stuff that happens, but we'll get, like, maybe we'll get to the refinery stuff in a minute um, or a couple minutes because we don't have like that much longer. Yeah. But um, the conversation with Baltar. So, so here's the thing with Baltar, right? Um, well, oh, and, and so the duality here is like, I think by now, he, you know, uh, by the time he gets there and is talking about our Tyrrell's kind of realizing, you know, kind of that some of these things might be true, mm-hmm. but it's that, yeah, like it's that thing of like, he again like at one point he was like totally against baltar and his administration and uh you know i mean had baltar been around and the circle caught him like tyrrell might have (laughs) been yeah you know helping out there um yeah and so you know, he comes in and is asking him, like, if it's true and, like, kind of confronting him about, confronting Baltar about his own upbringing and stuff. So here's the thing with Baltar, though, right? Like, at the end of his whole, like, accent thing mm-hmm. is, like, are we, do we believe that he's from that planet or not? Like, from one of those colonies or not? Like... Like, did he, like, what's the more believable given the, given every, like, if we believe everything that's being said mm-hmm. about people from those colonies, from those colonies, um, not being able to make it, mm-hmm. you know, even to the point where, like, you have, like, whatever success Duala had mm-hmm. isn't can't be attributed to her so much as who she married. Um, do we believe like Baltar's thing about as a 10 year old boy, he was able to like change the way he talked and like somehow talk his way off planet and get a great education and become one of the top people mm-hmm. in the world. And like it not be public knowledge that, he was from that planet Hmm. you know like that this is i don't know maybe like maybe Hmm. he was so good that he was able to hide all of that or is it like if we're using occam's razor to like cut through Hmm. like what what the easiest solution is here Mm -hmm. is it more believable that as an adult he figured out how to talk like someone from that colony mimic and, an accent and, and, right, and can right. and can use that now to make people think that he is you know had a mm-hmm. had a had a more blue collar upbringing than maybe he actually did mm-hmm. yeah 
So no, I mean on on the evidence of the episode, I think those are it's left uh, open a bit. Um, I mean, I do agree that probably the 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 thing which makes you the most skeptical is is that this isn't public knowledge or common knowledge seems the most unlikely piece of it. Yeah. Um, right. But if, on the other hand, if, we, if Wikipedia had existed, it, it, it was wiped right. out when Caprica, you know, was blown up. <laughs> right. Right. Like, but he was clearly famous. So maybe people would have known, Oh, he, this right. was a boy from a humble upbringing. Like it right. would have been one of those pieces of knowledge and, that you know about him. And I feel like that's, him up. that's something that he would have, promoted like like the whole like like oh oh i you know i didn't want anyone to know that i was from what whatever like at some point you get famous enough to like like you want people to know because it's like right it can't hurt you anymore story yeah right right um um yeah i mean no i think that's a good point um in the favor of of the it's true interpretation is I think I kind of believe that Baltar is capable of talking his way into almost anything, you know? So, and especially if he's this prod prodigy and genius at a young age, like could he get a scholarship to, you know, some prestigious university that gives him an education? Like he could be that, that exceptional person who is able to rise above you know, the masses and escape their situation. Um, that part I, I find believable enough. So, um, yeah, I don't know. And whether yeah, he I learned mean, the and, accent, and whether I, he learned an accent when he was 10 or whether he's putting it on now, either way, he's good at mimicking other people's voices. So that could go either way. Um, yeah. And I, and I'm not trying to imply that like, there is a set answer. Like, I think it is ambiguous. And I think that goes mm-hmm. along with yeah. a lot in this episode of, of there is sort of like two ways you can look at all of these different things. Well, um, and, and you're, you're, you question Baltar's truthfulness enough to, and you know, he's in a situation again, where he's trying to convince people of his, you know, um, worth to keep around you know so like he certainly has a motivation to lie about his past if it makes him a more sympathetic person um i really like the name uh cuddles breath wash (laughs) like it's just like the best english cotswolds like tiny little village name it just makes me laugh Right. Um, and and again, like, unless you happen to run into someone else from this, like, incredibly small village on, you know. Right. Like, like you could imagine even other people from, what what was it, Ailan? Ailan? Aralon. Aralon, right. Like, like, I could almost imagine other people from, like, Aralon not even knowing right. that town exists. Right. So... Right. You know, I mean, like, there's town. Like, I live in upstate New York. There's towns in upstate New York where it's like, oh wait, that's an actual town. Like, I've never right. heard of that before. Like, right. Still, after living here for you know thirty odd years, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I could totally like, like, did he make that up? Is there a way to even check anymore? Like, right. whether that right. 
city ever existed and who like like what you know were they did they even like digitize their birth records <laughs> right right to verify right yeah um so yeah so like all of that to say like like i agree with you like it could be that he yeah like part of his exceptionality as a child maybe he maybe that was the start of it all like he realized that like in order to have a better life for himself at 10 years old he needed to like you know figure out how to speak like a capricorn and and never look back and mm -hmm. or you know as an adult he realizes hey this is a great story let me practice my airline right. you know uh right uh dialect for a bit and yeah you know try to convince people that's where i'm from i don't know um so yeah so i don't i mean oh, man ended up taking a lot more time talking through all this stuff than uh meant to necessarily so adam and roslyn i mean I don't know that it's quite as bad as, like, again, like, the episode where you've got, like, people just completely acting wholly out of character. But I don't know. I gotta, like... This is rough. Yeah. Roslyn not caring about children is, mm -hmm. I think, the biggest thing to me. Like, mm -hmm. her just being like, oh, well, families grow up, and so what if there's 12-year-olds working out? Uh-uh. Former education secretary doesn't mm -hmm. that just doesn't strike a chord with me like that she would be mm -hmm. okay with that yeah and I don't know like that, that I really that more than the Adama thing mm -hmm. I also after last episode like we keep talking about like last episode what they went through yeah and all everything that he went through to save Tyrell and Callie. Right. And right. whatever. And now he's going to put a gun to Callie's head and shoot her. Mm -hmm. I get what he, I get what they're like doing with like the whole mutiny thing. Yeah. But it's not mutiny, first of all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because as Tyrell points out, like they got the cap out. They got, you know, they're not like mm -hmm. sabotaging stuff. They're still doing their jobs maybe to a minimum amount but they're still doing mm -hmm. it and mm -hmm. and it's not even like like yes uh I, so it it always it always strikes me as like they play with the line of like the dictator versus mm -hmm. like democracy with a lot of this and like even even like Callie's question of like, oh, you can be arrested now for pissing Rosalind mm -hmm. off. Like, like again, like there's just like that. It's just like a little too much for like mm. someone who seems to be so dedicated to democracy and stuff. And mm -hmm. I don't know. the quick turnaround from we're going to shoot you dead to, okay, sure. Let's all sit down and talk nicely together about how we can resolve these issues. Right. Again, that also seems a little too much. 
so I don't know. I, I I've got some. I've got a little bit of not even like. Like I don't want to say like completely out of character, but like maybe like mm-hmm. a shade at like one one notch out of character. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like like yeah. if, if if it was like a bike chain, it would be just like that. Like it skipped just a little bit and like didn't fall completely mm-hmm. off, didn't like throw you off your bike or anything, but just kind of like maybe doesn't quite catch there yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I I kind of I don't necessarily disagree with that. Like. I can, I can see, like you said, I can see what they're trying to do, which I think it it is pushing the storyline further from Adama's beating up Chief to say, like, all right, you're not anybody's friend when you're a leader, like, you can't, you know, so I feel like it's, it's furthering that storyline, or it's trying to, of saying, if one of the officers, or one of the characters that we know refuses orders or disobeys in a way that Adama thinks is um, dangerous to, so, you know, and I I think part of it too is it's not just that they didn't sabotage equipment or that they didn't launch the, you know, ships. It's that like they make it so clear in this episode that they only have like one jump worth of Tilium. So like if the Cylons show up, they're like, basically screwed so part of it is that's the threat to the fleet is is you know um so he's kind of looking at this as like an emergency situation um whether or not he's right to do what he does or whether it's good characterization i'm not quite sure but like that's at least i think what they're trying to establish and it's so i think it's trying to show adama following through on that change in thinking of being willing to because there have been mutinies well they, right like no real consequences for them and so and this is the thing like the amount of shit and maybe that this is starbuck gets away with right right like, and so maybe this is kind of maybe a little zero to 60 like all right we could have we could have found a way to show that adama has this new kind of zero tolerance policy without going to the place of shooting Callie in the head. Like maybe that's right. <laughs> too, too big of a jump. Like we needed a, a middle point before we got to the point of being willing to like shoot people he loves, you know, like there's a, there's a, it is a bit yeah. too. I mean, they even, of a they even conclusion. went slower with Baltar himself. Like sure, right. You right, know, yeah. in torturing him. Like and and like kind of agonized over it more mm-hmm. than than this. So right. yeah, like I don't right. I don't I, again like maybe not entirely out of character, but like it, it definitely seemed like Right. Yeah, maybe that's a right. good way to like like you said they they ramped it up really quickly. Yeah, like maybe they just okay, we wanna make a point here, but you could have done it with you didn't have to go quite that far or at least not yet like if that's something you want to work your way up to of like would adama ever execute one of his people you gotta work your way there we can't just go from again zero to 60 in like overnight um especially like you said after the last episode where he moved helen highwater to 
save these two characters in particular. Um, so I think, yeah, I think maybe that's, I think maybe that's the problem is it was just a bit too fast. Um, and I think one of the things I have a problem with too is, um, does it feel like a little, I don't know if I want to call it a cop out or it's just frustrating that like Tyrrell basically like loses that standoff, right? Because he quote mutinies. Adama threatens Callie and Tyrrell gives in. That's the end of like, he's not willing to, this isn't, mm -hmm. he's something he's willing to have people killed for. Um, and then he's given his sit down with the president like he wanted. So it's sort of like, on the one hand, I believe that Adama does want to try to be reasonable and listen. But like, on the other hand, like, that doesn't happen. Like, that's the problem with like, you know, a lot of these like union versus whatever the administrative, you know, group negotiations with is like, you can't ever get someone to sit down and listen to you. And so it feels like a little too easy to me that like, we're going from maybe Adama will shoot Callie to, all right, here's the president. And then she agrees to every one of his terms and ideas. Right. And it's like, I don't necessarily disbelieve that any one of those characters would do that, but that seems like for the episode that's like about labor strikes, that seems like, well, that's an awfully nice ending to the story, you <laughs> <Right>. know, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So maybe it is a problem of proportion of like, how do we get the characters to behave in a way that's like appropriate to their character, but also appropriate to like how these sorts of negotiations like function in, I guess, the real world. Um, mm. And the characters, I think, are being asked to stand in for larger ideas than like themselves, you know? Sure. Like, it's not just Tyrrell and Adama and Roslyn. Like, it's, like, you know, a little morality play about, you know, labor unions and how they, you know, come up against the brick wall of, you know, mm -hmm. administrative oversight and everything. So it's kind of, maybe it's trying to kind of do two things at once and it doesn't quite manage them both sure sure um all right so we're at our hour we haven't actually talked about any of like the plot of the tilium refinery and the people there i mean mm -hmm. i i don't i don't know i don't know that we need to necessarily like yeah i mean i think it's more it's the plot that gets tyrell to make the decisions that he does and i don't really know that we see any of the characters again so i don't think they're hugely like um crucial yeah but um but yeah like having milo in as the kind of like child work laborer and you know um poor danny who gets <laughs> totally screwed yeah. like well and we didn't even you know. talk like like here's you know tiro sort of fighting like hey they're basically slaves and then it's like 
okay, well, let's just conscript like a bunch of other people to be slaves instead of them who like don't even have experience, but like have kind of sort of maybe a little bit of similar right. experience. And it's like, like Rosalind's just like, oh, well, we'll take them from the other ships. And Tyrell's like, oh, okay, that works. Like, wait, what? So now you're like, you're just kidnapping people from other ships and like making them right. do this thing. And that's supposed to right. solve things. Like, like again, like what about Starbuck? Like, she dismantled and like climbed into a Cylon Raider. Like she seems to be pretty decent with machinery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like have her do something like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like right. if, if you're talking about like, actually well, does that kind of prove Baltar's point of well, like, there's, there's two sets of people, and one of them can be forced into the Tillium refinery, and one of them can't, you know? It, it does, <laughs> like, and it doesn't, because, like, Tyrell just kind of is like, okay, yeah, that's a good solution. Sure, and, like, I right. feel like, like, I, I do feel like that's maybe a writing oversight, in that, mm-hmm. like, it should have been more like, Tyrell would be like, well, no, like... As a Viper pilot, like, all the Viper pilots should know how to work machinery. Mm-hmm. Or anyone who's on the Galactica should really know how to, like, work different types of machinery. Right. Like, why can't we have some of the Marines go over there? Or, like, why can't we have, you know... Right. I don't, I don't even know. Like, I don't know what other options there may or may not have been. But it just... It seems to me to say, like, oh, well, let's just take other blue-collar workers from elsewhere... Mm-hmm. and make them do all the stuff mm-hmm. um do you like most of the shots that we have of like people working the tillium refinery is like dudes dumping stuff out over like a grate that kind of sifts the tillium onto a conveyor belt like maybe right. maybe there's more to it than that but like mm-hmm. it seems to me like anyone can like take a wheelbarrow and like dump it out onto a conveyor belt. (laughs) Like, like you don't have, and, and that, and like they get there, like that's kind of Tiro's point at the end of like, you can have people from colonial one, like collecting laundry, like, but like, like why, why didn't you get there sooner when everything else is so ramped up? (laughs) Right. Um, Right. Like we kind of discussed, um, I don't know. You know, whatever. Like, yeah, it, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it, that 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 part of like, if we're talking about things that bother me about people's character, Tyrrell's mm-hmm. Tyrrell's quick acceptance of like making slaves of people from other ships seems like yeah. not in character either. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so I don't. Mm-hmm. I think we kind of talked about it a little bit but we i did at least want to just sort of maybe end on like the whole like where does even tyrell stand at this point and i think mm. you you touched on it when you were talking about like the um the fact that like he was against baltar's administration on new mm. caprica and here he's against you know roslin and, and adama and stuff and so he does seem to be sort of charting his own course um there's a concept actually um oh i think i closed the tab i was going to talk about it of um 
this idea of uh, what's known as strange attractors, where um, it has to do with like differential equations and stuff, but basically like you can have like these points or or series of points on like a plane. It's like very like high level math stuff, but like where like you know it creates these like patterns where like you never you never end up like touching either point, but just kind of like go around like and in between them and like, like all of this stuff. And so like, there's, um, it seems like Tyrrell's kind of doing that type of thing. Like he's, he, he's never quite, I almost say committing, but I don't even think like, that sounds like he's like just indecisive or whatever, but like, mm. like he's sort of purposefully not going all the way towards one or all the mm-hmm. way towards the other, but he's kind of like walking that line between them where, you know, is maybe not even quite even, like maybe sometime he leans a little more one way, sometime he leans a more, uh, a little more the other way, but um, just kind of like trying to figure out sort of and, and chart his own course kind of between what those things are. And, and I think you're right. Like it is more about like, like the people and like, it's not even like about the union, like the union is Mm -hmm. kind of like the tool or the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, method by which, you know, he gets things done, but it's more about like looking at like, yeah, what are the people suffering? What's, what's sort of the, Mm -hmm. you know, issues that are going on here and, and what can we do about them? Right. Right. Well, one of the things I remember when I, watched this with my parents um was my mom getting I do remember about this episode of my mom saying chief's a good democrat and like <laughs> I feel like there's truth in that of like yes he's the the you know labor union guy like you know that's sure his role in this episode but I don't know that that's quite right in the sense of like T- chief does again doesn't seem like someone who's very interested in political affiliation like in in committing himself to one specific, you know, ideal ideological viewpoint, I think like again, chief is about what is what he thinks is the necessary or the right thing in the moment by by his people, um, and that might change depending on the situation, um, and that you could call that kind of, I mean, I guess you could see that as sort of undecided or wishy washy, but but maybe it's, you know, I think from his point of view, it's more about keeping it grounded um, and keeping it about like that, um, you know, that viewpoint of what is the situation right now? Mm. Like, what do people need now and not getting bogged down in what they we think they should need or what we wish they needed, uh, but like actually, right, you know being among them and listening to them and kind of being one of them, but also above them who can try to help them by being that bridge between, you know, the officers and, you know, the workers. Um, Yeah. So maybe that rather than just, you know, waffling between the viewpoints, like he does kind of, stake out a position of his own you know of like i don't 
maybe like as much as he owes allegiance to Adama from a kind of military point of view, he doesn't necessarily ever totally commit himself to Baltar or Roslyn or Adama's views on anything. He kind of, you know, he does what he does and he makes choices, but he stays, you know, true to what he thinks the people need from him mm. at any given time. Sure. Apart from the, the time when he lost focus and let R Roslyn conscript people from other <laughs> ships. But that was a momentary lapse in concentration, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, fair enough. So, yeah. All right. So, yeah. I mean, I do think it's it's kind of going for some ambitious things, but probably in doing that... um you know, the writing doesn't always strike the right balance between the character motivations versus like, what are we trying to say? Um, you know, with what the story sort of represents and stands for and everything. Sure. All right. Um, well, moving on. Let's talk about Buffy. Yeah. Season six. Season um, six. Oh my gosh. We're almost. I know. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Wow. You know, Never. only like another year and a half. I know. <laughs> um, I've only been watching the show for how long? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Speaking of, yeah, how long have we been watching? It's been a while. It's um, been a while. So I wanted to start. Um, as we often do with these sort of season recaps, um, talking through some of the awards and, and production notes and stuff. Um, I believe, I didn't actually count this up, so I could be wrong, but I believe this season got more award nominations than any other. Mm -hmm. um, although it didn't win as many awards as other seasons, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to kind of go through a bunch of them. Um, and I think we've talked about some of these already because we've talked about like Once More With Feeling, which obviously <laughs> is like mm -hmm. a big part of some of these. But there's other ones too that I think um, worth talking about. And then of course, kind of like the, the season long awards, right? So um, four Emmy nominations, actually. Um, none of them for like important things, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, still there's four of them. So that's kind of interesting. Um, three of them were for Hell's Bells. Um, hmm. and, um, they all had to do with like prosthetics and hairstyle and makeup and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, just kind of interesting. Um, I thought, uh, and then, um, the the fourth one was for once more with feeling for outstanding music direction uh th didn't win any of those but um was at least nominated um so kind of the two uh groups of awards that um the show did best in are the saturn awards and then the golden satellite awards um and so you get uh a lot of these are like like actor and actress so um 
Best Television Actress for Sarah Michelle Gellar in both of those. Uh, Best Supporting Actor for James Marsters for Saturn Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and actually actually for both of them, for the Golden Satellite as well. Um, sorry, I'm kind of like having to look back and forth. Alison Hannigan, mm-hmm. um, Supporting Actress for both as well. Um, and then uh, uh, also supporting actress uh, Emma Caulfield for the Golden Satellite Awards. Um, and then for the Saturn Awards, uh, well, actually for both, was nominated for both the Saturn and Golden Satellites for the Best TV Series. Um, the Saturn Awards had actually won uh, Best Network t- Television Series. And then also for the Saturn Awards, uh, Emma Caulfield won uh, for the Cinescape Genre Face of the Future Award, um, mm-hmm. both for her work in Buffy and then for um, like an independent movie she did called Darkness Falls. Um, so yeah, so lots of good stuff there. Those are, you know, both kind of TV and genre mm-hmm. awards. And then also um, kind of the two big ones from a genre perspective. Um, obviously the Emmys are big from like the TV perspective, but Mm-hmm. Um, from a genre perspective, um, Once More With Feeling was nominated uh, for both Hugo Awards uh, Best Dramatic Presentation and the Nebula Awards uh, Best Script, um, mm-hmm. which we've talked about those before. So you, with the Hugo Awards, you have, um, this is actually the last year where you have a combined long and short form category. Mm-hmm. Um, and once more with feeling is the only television show nominated in that category. Um, Lord, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings won, uh, the category and there were, uh, there were like three other movies. And so okay. this is the only television show. So you kind of feel like right. had it, had it split out, you right. know, yes. into long yes. and short form, it probably would have won. It was a show in, right, right. Um, Right, and then nomination was, you know, and and I'll, it was a distinctive thing, just being the only one. I'll, yeah, I'll point out that we have something to look forward to because in the following year, which is the first year where Long and Short are split out, a Buffy episode does win. So we have yet to see that episode. I won't tell you which one it was, mm-hmm. um, but but just kind of noting that, you know, we're kind of setting the stage here for this really you know, important, uh, uh, the, the Hugos are the, the fan, you know, awarded, uh, mm-hmm. awards. Yeah. Um, and then, right. and then the Nebula is, is the, you know, more like the industry. It's, it's the writers and the, you know, science fiction authors and, and, or, uh, science fiction fantasies writers guild or whatever it is. Right. Um, right, right, right. Uh, with the best script for once more with feeling. And actually, I don't, I don't remember if that was one where the, it was up against any of the, I guess it wouldn't have been up against the ones we did because we're, we're in 2002. So it's before hmm. uh, the other shows we're right. looking at. Right. But, right. Um, right. Right. But you kind of feel like if the category of the Hugos had split a little earlier, Buffy probably would have been like, like Doctor Who or BSG where they have episodes nominated every year, you know? Yeah, um, certainly. And so it was kind of, it just, um, you know, uh, got this nomination on the cusp of that change, um, mm-hmm. enough to be nominated, uh, you know, a couple times, but, um, 
it's too bad they didn't split the category like right. five or ten years earlier. Right. Um, right. So, so. Um, yeah. Oh, so for the Nebula, uh, Lord of the Rings also <laughs> took that one too. So, you know, again, like, I mean, obviously very good movie in and of itself, but like, right, you right. know, uh, you know, that, that thing of where, you know, yeah, like you're, you're going up again with television episodes and, and the same thing happened with the body. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we talked about last season where, you know, that was also nominated and was the only television show that year, um, mm -hmm. uh, to be nominated for, from that perspective. So, yeah, just kind of a an interesting uh, thing there, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk more, uh, I guess, later. But um, yeah, well, it's good to see. You know, even though you know none of these shows ever really break the Emmy Awards, um, it's good to see the um, appreciation of the acting and everything that, like, the actors are being singled out for. Mm -hmm. You know. And, and like more so there's still those technical nominations, but I feel like an increasing focus on the acting, the writing, you know, the, the more creative and aesthetic kind of sure. accomplishments and everything. Um, yeah. More so than the first couple of seasons, that's been a increasing thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hands down from, I mean, just the, with the Emmys, I mean, to get four nominations, um, most in any uh, season, um, mm -hmm. including the next one, um, mm -hmm. you know, so, so that's, yeah. yeah, that's great. And then just overall, just, yeah, lots of, lots of good, uh, you know, recognition there. Um Mm -hmm. even if it didn't maybe win as many <laughs> mm -hmm. um so yeah um so you know production wise like i mean i think we've kind of made a big deal already about the fact that like this is joss's most hands-off season mm -hmm. um you know again he only wrote and directed one episode and it wasn't either the premiere or the finale mm -hmm. um which is the only season where that happens that he doesn't direct one or the other um, most of them he does both season five he only did the finale um and then season six he doesn't do either so um you know and then next season he'll actually will we'll be watching him again for next week you know he'll be back with the premiere of the next mm -hmm. season um but yeah just kind of his most hands-off he was mm -hmm. you know working on firefly and angel as well at the same time um and obviously the one episode he did this season was once more with feeling which you know again we talked like a lot of time and effort put into that a lot of uh you know production that went into that um yeah, so, you know, maybe not surprising that he only only worked on one episode this season and kind of had that yeah. thing. Um, well, and the one he did was such a whopper. Like, in terms yeah. of he wrote, he did it all himself, right? Like, 
Yeah, like he wrote, did the music and wrote the it, lyrics, directed it, you know, wrote composed it, wrote it, yeah. and orchestrated and you know, figured out all the harmonies yeah. and you know. Yeah, so there's um, down um, to every every detail, you know. So there's a uh, on on the DVDs. I'm gonna I'm gonna tease you a little bit because I know you haven't seen it yet. Um, on the DVDs where they have uh, an hour long panel with Joss and Marty Knoxon and uh, Nicholas Brendan and Michelle Trachtenberg, uh, Allison Hannigan and James Marsters, and where they're talking through you know a lot of the stuff from season six and obviously spend a lot of time on that and and um yeah you just get like michelle trachtenberg saying like yeah like joss was like dancing around like showing me what he wanted me to do like you know all this stuff and just like how much work went into it you know the sets and the lighting and the you know just everything with it um obviously very big production there um so yeah um before we kind of and i guess so obviously that's a very memorable episode and i think there are some memorable episodes in the season but one of the things that we were kind of talking about before we started was that um it's kind of like angel like we were talking about with with the angel season where that's a really arc heavy uh Mm -hmm. uh season and and again, like not that we haven't had seasonal arcs in other seasons because we certainly have, but like, yeah, especially kind of in the middle there, it's really hard to suss out, even just by looking at the names. Like some of these episodes, like you have, um, there was like the the run of three that I can never remember, like what happens in which, um, where you have like smashed and wrecked and gone, and it's just like. Yeah, right. I couldn't tell you. Like, I mean, maybe if I went and like read the descriptions, like, oh yeah, 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 okay. Um, right. Yeah, but like these are just kind of like overall, like yeah, you get the themes and you get what's going on, and then you know you have some memorable ones, like um, you know outside of ones more with feeling, you have like Tabula Rasa, which is kind of memorable, and Double Meat Palace, which is just kind of funny and weird. Um, Jane Espen's an episode, so of course. Um, uh, but yeah, like overall it's, it's just really hard. Like maybe you could take it beat by beat if you kind of go through the season, but even that, I'm not sure you would necessarily line up the beats exactly with like a specific episode. You just kind of know that that happened and you know, all of that. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, any additional thoughts there on your part? Like what? Yeah, no, I mean that. It's kind of my thinking too. And um, yeah, I do think that, I think it's, it doesn't quite um, become as blurred as Angel does, where when we were talking about like favorite episodes from Angel, I honestly looked at the titles and in more than like, in like many of them could not remember what like the premise not just not just what happens in terms of the ongoing character beats but like I couldn't even remember like the premise of the episode like what was like the story of that week Mm. I don't think this ever gets quite that extreme like I do think maybe with the exception of that little group in the middle that you mentioned um where smashed and wrecked are clearly like a continuing 
storyline and they're kind of two sides of a particular story so it's like you wouldn't really necessarily remember what happened um I couldn't necessarily tell you what happens with the arc progression in each episode but like if you said like like the episode titles like Double Meat Palace or House Bells or you know, Tabula Rasa or whatever like oh yeah I could tell you like well that's where they lose their memory or that's the wedding or that's whatever like I do think the the episodes had stronger kind of episode of the week premises um but in general I do think that it does do a similar thing of those become slightly less important and the emphasis is more put on um the overarching stories of you know Buffy's PTSD and her relationship with Spike and the Willow magic stuff and the relationship with Tara and the Xander and Anya relationship like that's really what mm. is memorable about the season rather than like the the really strong individual episodes mm-hmm. and so maybe there is a thing of like the sum is greater than the parts like because I, I do like the season like I, I think those are good storylines um Sure. But then when we sat down to kind of say, okay, what's your favorite episode? Like, other than Once More with Feeling, it was really hard to say, like, all right, as a stand, like, as an actual episode that is satisfying on its own terms, mm-hmm. does it have as many as in previous seasons? Um, like, I, I think in, generally I have, like, two or three or maybe even four that I could kind of go with any of them. And it's just a matter of what am I in the mood for today? You know, um, I don't know that there is that this season. Uh, so, which, you know, that's okay. I mean, part of that is I think consequence of playing with the seasonal arc and sure, you know, like if your focus is on, telling the ongoing development of the trio or showing Willow's kind of rise and fall with her, you know, magic and her personal relationships. Um, then that means that, you know, the monster of the week isn't necessarily going to be like, you know, the most well considered part of a given episode. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, speaking of once more with feeling <laughs> and, and, you know, trying to figure out what our favorite episodes were. I mean, it just happened to me, my lucky, my lucky week. <laughs> um, so I got to pick first mm-hmm. and I really did. I know. I really did try to find something else, but like you said, there really is no second choice here. Like once more with feeling is the clear best episode this season. Um, Right. Right. There's a, there's a, for once there's a right answer to this question. Right. You know, Um, which is good and bad. Like, cause even, even in seasons where maybe the arc hasn't been, as evenly, you know, matched throughout. Um, 
I still feel like there's maybe like it's a choice between like two or three like right. episodes. Yeah. I had there. I don't think even. I mean, without having gotten to it yet. Um, I mean, obviously, I've seen it, but like even in the next season, like I think there's. I don't think there's as much of a shoe in as there is in this season. So yeah. Had it fallen to you, you would have chosen it. It fell to me. We I, will just I acknowledge that it. fact. Um, yeah. Once more with feeling, I mean, I don't, and like, I kind of feel like, do we even need to like, like we could just Get drop, it. we could just drop the mic here. Right. Like boom, right. that's it. That's the one. Um, but no, we can't do that because what kind of, you know, podcast would this be if kind we of, didn't talk yeah. it to death? Um, so without getting into, like, the specifics of the episode, I do want to, like, look at look at it within the context of the larger season. Because I think one of the things that I really like is not just that, like, like there's a lot of turning points in... Mm. in this episode like you get Buffy's revelation about her thinking that she was in heaven to everyone else um mm-hmm. we knew it already as as viewers and Spike knew it I think he was the only other one right um mm. but you get the revelation there um but you all there's like so many other I don't know if hints is the right word but you know like foreshadowing or setups for other things that happen like other big moments between characters um like Sander and Anya like their song mm-hmm. and like the you know I'll never tell and like right, you know right. all of the like fears right. and issues the of all of their, yeah. their fears yeah um yeah. kind of going on and and even even to the point where like like you realize like like because like right after that it's like they're complaining to Giles about like the song they just sang right and like so like like they voice their fears and they've heard each other voicing those fears but then you still get 10 episodes later or nine episodes later hell's bells you know where like those fears are now for Xander anyway at the forefront mm-hmm. and and come out um so I don't know like I just I really like that it's not just like there's this fun like sing-along episode you know in the first third of the season that mm-hmm. then it's just kind of like okay nothing happens but it's like no it really like sets up a lot of a lot of the things that go on and and you have you know spike with his let me rest in peace like if you're not gonna love me then let me rest in peace and and it's like that that's like the rest of the season their relationship like mm-hmm. you know leave me alone no don't leave me alone like back and forth right right and, right so as much as this is joss's sort of little vanity project magnum opus it's not like he's just this is the fun musical episode that he went off and did on his own right it's clearly integrated with the story of the rest of the season like he had to have consulted with i mean clearly he had to but he like really had to consult with the rest of the writers because 
whether they're spinning off ideas that he generated in the musical or whether he is specifically setting up things that he knows are coming, it kind of doesn't matter because it, it works as a whole and it leads to mm -hmm. like this coherent kind of thing. Yeah. And even like one of the specials I watched for every time they talked about a character, they showed like a clip of their song from, so they would talk about their whole season, but mm -hmm. they would show like, you know, a piece of, the song that they sang and even like in the Xander and Anya song um one of the rhymes that they used was um Xander saying like she thinks I'm ordinary and Anya says like it's all just temporary and it's like for Anya that's totally setting up you know hell's bells of it kind of is like she has a pretty good fear there of this is you know, about to be sort of, you know, called off potentially. Yeah. Like this is maybe too good to last. Maybe it is not as solid as you'd like to think it is of a relationship. But for Xander with the ordinariness, like he's afraid that Anya thinks he's ordinary, but also that it's his ordinariness that saves the day at the end of the season. Sure. Right. Like, so that's kind of setting up not even just specifically to their relationship, but like a bigger concern for Xander of his own insecurity of not just who am I to Anya, but who am I to the group and what, you know, what can I contribute to anything? Um, which totally comes back at the end with Willow. So, um, well, and so there's a lot of really good little nuance, um, you know, which you definitely don't pick up the first, I mean, I appreciated those lines, but you appreciate them so much more right. at the end of the season. Um, and even even with Willow and Tara, like, you know, the climactic ending of that song of, right. you know, you make me complete and and realizing what that means when Tara's taken away, mm, then yeah. you're not complete anymore. and mm -hmm. and you know, all of this stuff yeah. that they go through, you know, to get to that point and then, yeah, you know, she's ripped away, you know, and, and you understand that grief even more. Um, so, yeah. Right. Well, and we appreciated the double entendre of I'm under your spell, right? Of like, right. she's being manipulated by Willow. Um, and not necessarily realizing it, but also then again, in hindsight, putting Willow's magic at the center yep. of the story, yep. you know, like Willow's spells are a very, very important, you know, aspect of the season. Um, and so, yeah, it works at the time that you first watch it and it works even better, you know, when you go back and can appreciate all of the little the little hints and foreshadowings and everything. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so, all right. So, like, we both agree that's a pretty good episode. Um, mm -hmm. It's not bad. The, uh, the choice then for you. Fell to me. <laughs> the, I had the... The, the, the not having no clear second choice, you were <laughs> forced to choose one anyway <laughs> i was uh, um yeah. and so i chose hell's bells which i actually do really like 
Um, you know, so that makes it, it's, it's going to sound like damning with faint praise, you know, and kind of backhanded compliments and everything. But I do think that's, you know, um, a really good, I mean, it is memorable, but also plays into those arcs um, and is also just really well done. And I like um, that they didn't necessarily do the most expected things with it. Like on the one hand, you're waiting for that shoe to drop of something bad to happen. And I think it's not necessarily the biggest twist in the world that the wedding gets, you know, broken up or that Xander sort of, you know, flakes out in one way or another. Um, yeah. But but the way they do it, I think they find... So there's a kind of inevitability to it, I guess, which is satisfying in its own way because it's like you're waiting for, like, this train wreck that you know is coming. Um, or that you fear is coming and your hope isn't, you hope isn't coming. Um, but um, the way that they do it in unexpected ways, like, I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that it, in the end it would be Xander's, um, that he would be so kind of aware that it was his own issues that were the problem. Mm. That like, it doesn't, it doesn't ever become about him turning on Anya so much as um you know that the way they do it as like a glimpse into the future in his own fear of what he'll become yeah um which you know now that I think about it one of the things they talked about in the uh one of the features was how you know the the focus on human monsters in this episode you know whether it's you know, the geek trio or whether it's what happens to Willow and kind of, you know, taking it to like a more human place. And it's like Xander totally fits into that with Hell's Bells that like, mm -hmm. you know, there is a monster of the week, but really Xander's fear is that he'll become the monster. He'll become this monstrous husband who will be selfish or abusive or disillusioned and bitter and yeah. you know all these things and it's his fear of that that kind of drives him to make you know the painful decision to to leave and call it off um and in a way ends up fulfilling that very fear you know of like to avoid hurting Anya he hurts Anya you know um so it's just complicated, and I think it, that kind of makes it well done. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I like it too. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything to add to it, <laughs> to be honest. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned sort of the human monsters. Um, and so one of the questions uh, that kept coming up, because I kept bringing it up, um, was like, yeah, who's who's the big bad this season? And can, can we answer that, like, first of all? And then if so, like, how do we answer it? <laughs> um, right. And I mean, I mean, I have my thoughts, but what what do you think? you know, uh, do we, do yeah, we have I mean, an answer? 
I mean, I don't know that I have one answer that really convinces me more than any other. So I'd be interested to hear, see if you have one because I feel like I can think of a couple, but they're all in slightly different ways. Like, I mean, the geek trio are the big bad that has an ongoing arc of like, this is the menace. This is the pain in the butt throughout the season. And even though they end up being, you know, kind of potentially victims of Willow's, that doesn't necessarily take away from the actual damage that they do. And like, just because they're kind of pathetic big bads doesn't mean they're not necessarily, you know, big bads. Like they do, you know, cause a lot of problems, um, you know, throughout the season. So there's that, but then, you know, there's also the slow build of, of Willow, you know, and how like, okay, she's not really revealed as dark Willow until the end, but it's this progression over time. So you could see, the geek trio being a kind of red herring like we've had before of like where you think it's going to be somebody or like you think it's going to be spike and then it really he gets overtaken by something bigger and worse um you know i think like willow could be that thing that sneaks up on you in the end um which is kind of interesting i like the idea of of a big bad being one of the good guys like you know like the idea that willow goes off the rails for a bit is a kind of interesting um notion Mm -hmm. um but then there's like the more kind of metaphorical things like um death occurred to me like the way that it begins and ends with the grave and the climbing out of the ground and all that um and then you have concerns throughout of Buffy's lack of will to live or you know, or the death of Tara or, you know, all these things. So you could kind of see them fighting, Mm. you know, uh, the sort of specter of that. Um, And then I think uh, one of the DVD specials was called Life is the Big Bad. So they kind of talked about it as like just the process of, of growing up and living in the world and having bad things happen to you and you have to just learn how to live with them and move on that's really um you know which goes along with these kind of more human monsters of it's not always you know the vampires or the master it's like you know misogynistic immature boys you know or it's you know or, or it's willow's grief or you know these more kind of human mundane concerns and everything so i don't know if one of them i don't know if i'm sold on anything in particular so yeah um yeah i that's all those are all good options i don't know that i have anything (laughs) different than what you've said um as like candidates for the big bad um Sure. And is there one that stands out to you? Like when so, you think about, so prior to our, prior to our discussions, what would you have I said mean, I'm is not, the big bad of the season? I, I'm less, like, I don't, I don't really think because these are so metaphorical anyway, like I'm not inclined to go with like some of the more nebulous, like, 
life idea. Or death or, yeah, like right, life right. and death or the grave or something like that. Like the, you know, the those sort of abstract ideas mm-hmm. as the big bad. Um, although I, I mean, I see what you're saying and certainly um, that's all stuff that gets explored. Um, so yeah. So like for me, I guess I would leave it more between like, mm-hmm. is it the trio or is it Willow or is there sort of a combination? Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, the thing that makes it hard is because it's not like it's not like the trigger the <laughs> literally it's not like the trio is like the trigger for willow because mm-hmm. she's from the beginning of the season early on in the season anyway like building up you know her own magic misuse right like like she's kind of doing her thing independent of what the trio's doing Mm-hmm. And it's kind of when they converge that right. It's the collision of those yeah, two that creates the the that that the, the real climax that at the, the end. big yeah. problem really yeah really pops. So I I mean I don't and maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is that like it's not one thing. It's it is more of like and and maybe after just having said I'm not into the more abstract things i'm kind of leading that way anyway <laughs> like like maybe it is that like yeah that collision of life and like sometimes you just get this perfect storm of mm-hmm. things that happen and 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 you snap and that's what right. causes it and um right like the the cruelty and the pettiness of the trio when that crashes into willow's sort of very a tentative grasp on her self-control. That's the fatal thing right. of like somebody who's waiting on the, on the cliff's edge gets pushed yeah. accidentally and, in a way by somebody else. And I mean, not that like it would have been better, but like you almost think that like, if it hadn't been like that day, but even like the next day or a week or something later, like Willow mm-hmm. might not have reacted quite as bad. You know what I mean? Like, right. like again, like Tara would still be dead. Willow would still be upset and, and whatever. And who knows, but like that, it was like so immediate. It was almost like that perfect timing of, mm-hmm. you know, when, you know, when's the worst absolute time that something could go wrong. And then that's when it goes wrong. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sort of the Murphy's law or whatever. I mean, there's, you know, the interesting part, too, of course, is that, like, like the very deliberate uh, use of a gun rather than, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some sort of magic, which the trio has done magic and, you know, right. that kind of stuff before. So it's not like, you know, they kind of whip something up to try to throw it Buffy magically mm-hmm whatever but you know that's what you know it's that clash between the natural quote-unquote natural and uh magical world too that kind of exacerbates mm-hmm. the the clash there so to speak mm-hmm. um so yeah i don't i mean i don't know that i gave an answer per se but that would be like those are all considerations mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and maybe that is the answer. Maybe like, 
at least at this point, I don't, I don't know that like it even can be answered. Um, Mm-hmm. yeah maybe the answer is that it can't be answered you know <laughs> or that at least the answer is i don't know how to answer it at this point um yeah because i i don't because of that independent development of the things and and that it did sort of take both of them to create the big bad situation um mm-hmm. like i don't know that you can blame it wholly on one or the other mm-hmm. um yeah. Yeah. Um, in thinking through, oh, you know, like the arc of the season, though. So one of the complaints often levied against this season is, you know, yeah. how dark it is compared to mm-hmm. previous seasons. Um, and like, fair enough. Like, I mean, there is a lot of darkness and not even like how much about death and stuff, but just like you know, you get Dawn and her kleptomania and you get, you know, Spike and, and, you know, basically trying to rape Buffy and you get, right. Um, just even, you know, Buffy with her, uh, depression and, um, you know, you get episodes like, uh, 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 normal again, you know, where it's like very, Mm -hmm confusing in a kind of weird and scary way of you know is Mm -hmm. this real am i insane you know what's going on um you know you get the the breakdown of the relationships um with tara and willow and then you know with with uh xander and anya um and and i mean include including the attempted rape you know i mean it's not like without that uh Buffy and Spike's yeah. relationship is great anyway. I mean it's pretty toxic all along. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like I mean it is that kind of like like you were saying, like it's like life just kinda throwing you curveball after curveball and just having to deal with with everything. And so, you know, I mean that was intentional. Like it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, that's just right. how it happened to work itself out like you know so uh, and so marty knoxon specifically tends to get a lot of crap for this this is her ruining buffy i presume yeah maybe yeah like this is the right the her twitter handle i ruin buffy or whatever right like you know her you know people writing in letters you know asking like why it had to be so dark and dreary and Mm-hmm. all of this and you know i mean i don't know like i don't i don't know that i have an answer for it but it's you know at least bringing it there's um one one of the early why well, say early i mean probably eight or nine years ago so maybe not like real early but like um there's a collection of essays on buffy but specifically around this season and a little bit of the next but mostly season six um, called Buffy Goes Dark. And it's like mm-hmm. all of the essays are, you know, like exploring that idea of like, yeah. this is the season where where things really take a, a dark turn. And um, I don't have anything. I haven't actually read the collection, but I just kind of know it's out there. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's just kind of like taken for granted that that's, that this is that. Yeah. 
season where things really go downhill a bit. Um, well, and it's, I think it's because, because it's like, well, certainly there was darkness before and like, you know, it's hard to think of a darker episode in some ways than the body. Right. Um, but I feel like the difference is maybe more that, you know, bad things would happen to the characters, but it was more like that. It was outside of their control. Bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of life. Whereas I feel like in this season, it the bad things are more often of their own making. Like they're they're their own worst enemies. They're the contributors to their own like apart from the trio, the geek trio, like it's Buffy's like you said, toxic relationship with Spike. It's um, it's uh, Willow's abuse of the magic, her lying and manipulation to Tara, and then her kind of going over the top at the end. It's Xander leaving Anya at the altar. It's Giles leaving at all. Mm. Um, you know, and so I feel like that's what makes it harder to watch, I think, for some people, is not just bad things happen, but like when it's the kind of the fault of the characters like that's kind of what makes it feel dark like not just like oh we get attacked by monsters and people die because we can't really do anything about that that's the way it always is but i feel like sure. the fact that they're all kind of self-destructing is what makes it I think that what people would protest to, whether or not they're right to protest to that, that that has to be the thing that is sending people to like write in angry letters and stuff. Um, you know. Yeah. So, you know, and I think like, hey, if you want to take a season and do that, like, go for it. It's not like that's typical. Like, every other like if this is the dark season then it is that way because the rest of them weren't quite that dark um and it's not like they're doing it in the last season where like this is the the note that you're leaving them on is just like absolute bitter tragedy so um yeah i kind of from a from a a bigger perspective of the show being over and I, maybe it's different if you're watching it and you don't like when it's new and you don't know where it's going. Um, but um, like, I kind of feel like that's an interesting direction to take the show and an interesting thing to explore is like, what if the characters just all start to make terrible, terrible decisions and kind of, if we do a season of that, what does that look like? You know? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so yeah, so well, so we kind of brought up before to sort of the book ending of the season with uh, the graves or, or more specifically climbing out of the graves. Um, so, you know, one of the things that um, the and, and uh, I forget even who it was doing the um, commentary in the last episode there. Um, oh, David Fury and uh, James Contner, who uh, were kind of talking about with that scene right near the end of the episode. Um, and I said the end of the season, 
um, where you have Buffy and Don climbing out um, of the ground there and just sort of the explicit callback. But like, but this is, you know, Buffy emerging sort of on her own terms now. And so you have like, you have like a full circle, but you also have sort of a breaking of the circle, if that makes sense. Like you've got mm -hmm. this idea of um, at the end of last season, Buffy killed herself basically, right? By jumping into the portal and, you know, she landed and died and all that stuff. And then like the beginning of the season, it's Willow using her power to resurrect Buffy mm -hmm. and, and, I mean, she emerges, but, like, this wasn't, like, her choice to come back, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? But now you have, and then, you know, she then spends much of the season sort of lethargic and then kind of slowly comes out. But now it's, even before, like, they they climb out in the finale, like, you know, it's, Buffy and Dawn fighting, right? Like Buffy first, like trying to climb out on her own and then like they're fighting mm -hmm. and, and then you get, you know, her crying and being like, you know, I don't want to die. And kind of that realization of like, like mm -hmm. now she has gotten to this new place. And so like just that idea of it took a year or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, but like now she's, back she's on her own terms um dawn is stronger for it too like she's mm -hmm. like buffy sort of empowered her in a way you know to mm -hmm. you know be someone who can fight um and like dawn is the age where buffy was when she first became the slayer right or at least right. the age of when we like started this, this series so yeah, like there's kind of that aspect of it too, where it's like you've got this, you do have the darkness, but there's also an emergence from it, right? Like, right. like kind of the literal emergence of the darkness, you know, from the darkness of the grave, but also mm -hmm. like, you know, the metaphorical version. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I mean, right. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but just kind of like wanted to acknowledge. Well, yeah, and, and I think that again, in a show where like that dwelling in that darkness to this extent isn't the, the norm. That's why you do maybe a season like this is to get the other side of it. Yeah. Like it in order to have wait wait, Buffy, wait, wait, wait. We we have to keep that in mind for Wesley's character in Angel as well. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, hmm, yes. Um well right. So like Buffy climbing out of the grave at the end of the season only really has impact if you take her to that really dark place. So it kind of, again, can be a difficult watch. Um, but I think kind of justifies its own existence as a storyline, you know, to say like, if, if we're going to have a story about Buffy going to a dark place and then coming out of it, you have to take her to the dark place. And that it's not enough to just do that for like an episode. Like, you know, you have to do an extended period of it. And 
they kind of did a whole season with all of the characters all went through it together at the same time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can understand why that might not be the show some people want to watch necessarily, but like, um, you know, I think screw it. It worked, you know, like <laughs> I think in retrospect, it probably was a good idea. Um, and like shows commitment to their own ideas of like, all right, if we're going to do that, we really have to commit to it, uh, which they did. Yeah. And shows how well they had it planned out of like, all right, you know, these are, we have certain metaphors and images in mind that we're going to, you know, connect the beginning and the end to have it be like a coherent story. So. Um, well, all right. Um, I don't know. I think we can probably end there at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, we did have, uh, one last bullet point, but I feel like we kind of covered it. Yeah. Um, so you, know, you kind of brought up the demetaphoricalization aspect that <laughs> if that's a word, um, that they mention, And I feel like that goes along with this emphasis on you know, in quotes, real life or, you know, growing up and all those things of, you yeah. know, rather than just have metaphors for death and destructive relationships and all these things, like we'll actually show the characters having those actual, yeah, you know, issues in their, in their lives. In addition to all of the metaphor of the week uh, hijinks that we don't normally have. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. And now we, uh, so the question is like, we've gone through the darkness, right. And come out the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, Willow tried to destroy the world, but was stopped by the memory of a yellow crayon. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Like where, where are we? What's going to happen next? Is Giles sticking around a while or what's going on? I hope so. Come on, Giles. Well, I guess we'll find out and we'll be One back. One more season. You can do it. We'll be back next week to talk about it, I, I guess. Oh, yeah. Okay. Next next week. Right. So we've got actually we've got the first two episodes, I think, in a row then before we have to get back to Angel. Right. OK. Um, so, yeah. So. All right, see you then.